Hey Conjurers, I'm Steph. And I'm Sham. In the early 70s, a serial killer was stalking the streets of Washington, D.C., looking for beautiful young black girls. Over a span of 17 months, six precious young lives were taken, and to this day, those families are left without answers. Spinks was a 13-year-old girl who attended Johnson Junior High School in Washington, D.C. She was known to be kind of shy and was one out of eight children. She even had an identical twin sister named Caroline. The day of April 25, 1971, Carol's older sister Valerie asked her if she could go to the local 7-Eleven. It was about a half a mile from her home to pick up a few groceries. She agreed, even though her mom had told her and the other kids not to leave the house for any reason. Carol actually bumped into her mom on the way there, who fiercely told her to get the groceries and head straight home. She was seen with groceries in her hand on her way back by another kid in the neighborhood, but she never made it home. The kid was the last person to see Carol alive. I can't help but think to myself, I wish she had listened to her mother. That is probably because I'm looking at this from the perspective of a mother myself. Oh, I agree, especially with having a daughter now. I hope she always listens to me. I can honestly say, even though my child is seven years old, I keep things very real with her. Little warnings my mom told me about strangers always stuck with me in the back of my mind in weird situations, and it often made me run away from things when I sense danger. Plus, I'll always remind her, your mother is addicted to true crime, and I know exactly what (laughs) I'm talking about. (laughs) Six days later, her body was discovered by an 11-year-old boy. She was fully clothed, except for her shoes were missing, and dumped on the side of Anacosta Freeway. She had died three to four days earlier, and tests of her stomach contents showed she had been fed a citrus fruit shortly before she died. It made it clear that whomever was responsible for taking her life had kept her alive for a few days. The fact that she had been held somewhere for days somehow makes it worse. I don't even want to think about what might have been happening to her during those few days. Yeah, I mean, both scenarios are terrible. It's almost like when a loved one goes missing, you know? The most horrifying thoughts aren't even if they were possibly murdered. It's the thought of them being alone, harmed, and afraid. The least someone can have is closure of knowing where their loved one is, dead or alive. Agreed. And this is a crime show, so I know I have to ask if she had been sexually assaulted. Unfortunately, Carol had been sexually assaulted. She also had suffered brutal hits to the face, leaving cuts to her face, torso, and arms. Her final cause of death was strangulation. The only real evidence the investigators found were some small green fibers that could be found from a car or a home carpet or a rug. Two months after Carol was found, another girl went missing. Darlenia Johnson was 16 when she disappeared on July 8, 1971, while walking to work. She lived in Congress Heights, only a few blocks from Carol's house. At about 10.30 a.m., she told her mom that she was planning to spend the night at the rec center where she worked as a counselor because they were hosting a sleepover for the kids. She never made it to work that day, and when she didn't come home the next day, her family reported her missing. One witness said they saw her with her boyfriend that afternoon, but the boyfriend's mother would not allow police to question him. 
Another witness claimed they saw her in a car with an older black man but could not provide any details about the car. These witness statements didn't lead anywhere and the family was at a loss. The worst part about Darlenia's case is because she was on her way to spend the night somewhere, that gave the murderer such a wide window to go after her and have it go unnoticed. It would have been nice for her job to call her home to see if she was still coming in, but listen, this is the 70s and jobs barely do that in 2020. Absolutely. I'm actually lucky that way. There was this one time I had a dentist appointment one morning before work and I forgot to tell my coworkers. And minutes after I normally would have been there, they started calling me to make sure I was okay. If I were to go missing on the way to work, I have no doubt that they would notice. I would text you, staff. I would make sure you made it. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. <laughs> so a few days later, a D.C. Department of Highway and Traffic employee who had pulled over to fix his car found a body off the side of the road. He was the second person that day to report that body to police, so he left having done his duty. But police barely made an attempt to locate the body. Two officers drove by the area but never even got out of their car to look before radioing in that there was nothing out there. A week later, one of the people who had called in went back to where they had found the body and was horrified to discover that she was still there, untouched and rotting in the sweltering heat. Angry at the inaction by police, the man told his boss, who called his friend, who was a district police sergeant. Charles Baden was off duty that day. He says, I asked him if he called the police, and he said, yeah, but nobody came. Baden rode there on his motorcycle and drove along the shoulder until he found the body. The body was just 15 feet from where Carol's remains had been discovered. Baden got detectives and police out there immediately, but by then her body was badly decomposed. Okay, so I have to say something. If Darlenia was a white woman, I can promise you her body would have not been overlooked not once, but twice before they took that sighting seriously. According to the Montgomery Advisor article titled, Missing Black Women's Cases Are Often Unsolved and Unreported. And I quote, Although black women make up less than 7% of the U.S. population, they represent 10% of all missing persons cases throughout the country. Estimates by the Black and Missing Foundation put the total number of disappeared black women and girls at 64,000. This is because black girls are often classified as runaways rather than missing persons, shifting the focus from public safety to personal responsibility. This means, before we even make it to the basic news station, the community and country are already looking for reasons as to why we put ourselves in such danger, and why we may have deserved it. And we aren't just talking about when these girls went missing. This is still a huge problem today. One big factor is what scientists call missing white girl syndrome. This refers to the overabundance of coverage that mainstream media outlets dedicate to missing person cases of white women and girls, and its correlating lack of coverage of missing people of color. Some have characterized the phenomenon as round-the-clock coverage of disappeared young females who qualify as damsels in distress by race, class, and other relevant social variables. A 2015 academic study by Clara Simmons and Joshua Woods found that while minorities were disproportionately represented in news coverage, African-Americans missing children, in particular, were significantly underrepresented when compared to national statistics. 
they found that even though they make up more of the missing person cases, African-American missing children amounted to a shockingly low 7% of media references, while white missing children cases received 76%. So I'm going to guess and say that they missed out on a ton of evidence due to their lack of observation for an entire week. Uh, you think? They had ignored her so long that no one could tell who she was by looking at her. And DNA wasn't a thing back then. With the condition of her body, they had to cut her fingers off to try and get fingerprints and identify her. They struggled to find a cause of death because of the decomposition, but there were small signs of strangulation. There was almost no evidence available by this point. All they had was the fact that she had been fully dressed, but her shoes were missing. Even though she was found so close to where Carol had been found, the police did not believe the two cases were linked. But parents in the neighborhood started warning people in the southeast to be on the lookout. Wow, just to think how much could have been found if they didn't leave her body outside in such poor conditions for a whole week. Right? It's infuriating. At least the neighborhood made the connection, though, and started talking to each other. It probably saved a few other girls in that neighborhood from being next. Oh, but that didn't stop him. On the evening of July 27, 1971, only 19 days after Darlenia vanished, 10-year-old Brenda Crockett from Northwest D.C. was sent to the local Safeway. It was about five blocks away from her home. Her mother sent her there to pick up some bread and food for the family's dog. Brenda's mother had told her to take a friend with her, but one could assume it was because of her age at the time, but Brenda decided she wanted to go alone. After not returning home after an hour, her mother went looking for her. Brenda's sister Bertha stayed home with her mom's boyfriend. While Bertha was waiting, a shocking phone call came through. It was her sister Brenda, who immediately told her a white man had snatched her and took her somewhere in Virginia and was planning on sending her home in a taxi. The call came to an abrupt end. This startled Bertha because Virginia is almost four hours from Northwest D.C., and Brenda had only been missing for three hours. There was no way Brenda could have made it to Virginia in that time frame. 25 minutes later, around 10 p.m., the phone rang again. This time, Brenda's mom's boyfriend answered. Sure enough, it was Brenda. The boyfriend asked if Brenda knew where she was in Virginia. She said no, but asked, did mother see me? To which he replied, how could your mother see you if you're in Virginia? It was then that he heard footsteps in the background before Brenda said, I'll see you, before the call came to an end. I saw some theories when researching this case that suggested maybe the man who abducted her was holding her nearby and possibly even knew her mother. The theory is that he forced her to make that call and sprinkled in some lies because he was worried her mom might have seen him abducting Brenda and wanted to gauge how much they had seen while also sending police in the wrong direction. That's not a bad theory. It would make sense for him to throw potential law enforcement off and her family by sending them hours away. It sounds like a stretch of a lie he didn't fully think through, but who knows how his mind works. So far, he sounds like the man you eyeball in the grocery store and grip your child closer to you as he walks by. (laughs) I'm sure it made people paranoid, wondering if they knew him and just didn't realize he was a monster. So what happened next in Brenda's story? Eight hours after Brenda's disappearance, a hitchhiker was traveling on U.S. Route 50, and he discovered her body on the side of a busy road. Just like the previous girls, the cause of death was strangulation, but specifically with a scarf. 
Even though she had left the house with no shoes, her bare feet were clean as if they had been recently washed. Just like Carol, there were signs of sexual assault. Okay, the shoes were missing from the first two girls, and this girl hadn't been wearing any shoes to begin with, but her feet were freshly washed. It sounds like this guy had a serious foot fetish. I mean, that is a thing, and it's not uncommon. I feel like maybe he did it out of guilt, possibly. Maybe he felt like he couldn't help but go on these killing sprees and try to compensate his guilt with treating these girls like he cares about them. You know, at least while they're still alive. Feeding them false information to keep them hopeful, even if it was for a short time. Regardless, it's a creepy thing to do. Uh, It's so creepy. (laughs) And of course, in the end, investigators found small green fibers that could be found from a car, a carpet, or a rug just like the ones found from Carol's crime scene. Another two months later, on October 1st, 12-year-old Nino Moshia Yates was walking home in Northeast Washington, D.C. when she disappeared, just like the other three girls before her. Nino, to those who knew her, lived with her father and stepmother, who had just had a new baby. Her father was trying to split his time between being home with her and the hospital with his wife and new baby, Nino was happy to help, so she didn't think twice when she was asked to walk down to the Safeway a block away to pick up some sugar, flour, and paper plates. The store clerk remembers her buying those items around 7 p.m. Later that night, another employee found those items scattered across the street outside the store. Oh my gosh, this is such an everyday task. She simply just went to the grocery store. This could have easily happened to any other young lady that day. My sister and I used to walk farther than that to get to the local Safeway for snacks or whatever when we were young. Could have happened to anybody. Her family didn't even have time to realize she was missing, when less than three hours later, a 16-year-old boy found her still warm body along Pennsylvania Avenue. A neighbor came forward saying they saw her get into a blue Volkswagen, but didn't think much of it at the time because a friend of the Yates family drove a similar car. Like the others, she was fully clothed, but had been sexually assaulted and strangled. The police noted that her strangulation had been excessive, so much so that her killer had broken her esophagus. Green fibers were also found on her clothes, and the police could no longer ignore the blaring fact that these cases were all linked. They announced to the media that they suspected a serial killer. A local tabloid, the Daily News, nicknamed the killer the Freeway Phantom, and it stuck. The FBI got involved at this point, but weren't able to put much effort into the investigation because at the same time, they had their hands full with the Watergate scandal. I feel like due to her body being found within three hours of her leaving the house, the killer didn't have time to clean her, feed her, and she likely fought during her strangulation, causing him to use excessive force on her. Nino didn't go down without a fight. I can say it's sad that it took her death for law enforcement to finally see a connection between her and our previously murdered girls. But who knows how much could have been accomplished if these crimes were looked into a little bit harder. I know, right? I can't believe it took four murdered girls for police to catch on and link them. It's insane. That is a good point, though. Maybe he got interrupted or he had somewhere he had to be and couldn't take the time with her that he normally did. Agreed. Brenda Denise Woodward was 18 years old and lived with her family in Baltimore, Maryland. In the fall of 1971, Brenda began taking night classes at Cardoza High School. 
On the evening of November 15, 1971, which was a little over a month and a half after Nina went missing, her and her classmates stopped at a local restaurant called Ben's Chili Bowl to grab some dinner before heading home. Now, typically her classmate drove her home, but his car was being repaired, so they decided to take the bus instead. Brenda got off a few blocks from the restaurant to transfer buses, and she was never seen alive again. This killer has to be just taking advantage of random moments of opportunity. Most of these girls were running random errands, or in Brenda's case, would normally have been driven home by her friend and was unexpectedly riding the bus. It seems like he just happens upon them, wrong place, wrong time style. Right. There's not one case that could have possibly been planned out ahead of time. The only plan I can see the killer having is to go outside and grab the first black girl that appears to be alone and possibly looks off guard because, you know, no one should have to watch their back going to the grocery store or transferring buses. We should feel safe in our communities. Looking at their pictures, they're all cute, petite, look very young. He certainly had a type he was targeting, though. Oh, for sure. On the morning of November 16th, Police officer David Norman spotted Brenda's body on Hospital Drive near Prince George's Hospital. Brenda's velvet coat was draped over her, and her black turtleneck was inside out. Buttons were also missing from her coat and skirt. Her cause of death was exactly what we were expecting. She was sexually assaulted and strangled to death. The only difference from our previously murdered girls is that she had been stabbed four times as well. The evidence was a little bit more detailed than any previous similar murder. She had defensive marks on her hands and arms, indicating that Brenda did not go down without a fight. The piece of evidence that stood out the most was a note stuffed in Brenda's coat pocket that said the following, This is tantamount. To my insensitivity to people, especially women, I will admit the others when you catch me if you can. The killer signed the note at the end as the freeway phantom. Her case was so different from the rest. First of all, she had those defensive wounds. She was the oldest of the girls, and she wasn't going down without a fight. But she also still had her shoes on, if I remember correctly, which totally deviates from the previous victims. And then there's that note. Leaving a note like that is risky. Police have more to work with to trace the crime back to a specific person. And the language is so unusual. Who uses a word like tantamount? Right, like out of all the words? (laughs) It almost makes you wonder if he was just being a complete asshole taunting these girls' families and the community, or was the guilt starting to catch up with him and he was hoping to get caught? He took his killing to another level with Brenda. Did they get anything off that note? Handwriting analysis or fingerprints or anything? Yeah, so after the writing was compared to Brenda's handwriting, it matched. The investigators felt that the killer had forced Brenda to write the letter for him before taking her life. They also found two different hair samples on Brenda's clothing, one belonging to a Caucasian man and the other to an African-American man. Despite having the hair samples, the police were unable to determine who they belonged to or if either of them were from the actual killer. After Brenda's case, the freeway phantom went quiet. Two different hair samples. What if it's a team? Two men abducting and killing these girls together. On the other hand, Brenda's evidence was so different than the other girls. Maybe she was killed by two men unconnected to the other girls trying to disguise their crime as a freeway phantom victim to cover their tracks? That doesn't seem impossible. 
Based on the other girls' evidence, witnesses either saw only one man near the girls at the time, or like our girl Brenda, she mentioned only one man. It's also possible that the second hair sample could have been completely unrelated to that night, and it could have just belonged to a friend or a classmate. That's true. But I still think it's super weird that her evidence was so different than all of the other girls linked to this killer. Okay, so get this. Almost a year went by without another girl being taken. People had to wonder if it was finally over. That was until September 5th, 1972, when 17-year-old Diane Williams disappeared on her way home from her boyfriend's house. Diane was an aspiring model and was well-known by her friends and family for her incredible fashion sense. She had just started her senior year of high school and over the summer had fallen in love. She had big dreams and was excited about her future. The night of September 5th, she cooked dinner for her family, then left to go spend the evening with her boyfriend. After 11 p.m., she knew she needed to be getting home. Her boyfriend walked her to the bus stop, and they said their goodbyes. He had no idea that this would be the last time he would see Diane alive. Oh my gosh, way to give the community all this hope that it's finally done, or gone, and just tear it all down. It's almost like he was unable to continue his killing spree for a while. Like, maybe he was in jail or something, you know? I think if he had the opportunity to harm another girl, he would have. So I'm assuming they found Diane shortly after? Yes. The next day, a trucker who had pulled off the road for a break found Diane's body discarded along I-295. Oh my gosh. She was fully clothed, but her shoes had been removed and carefully placed next to her body. Diane was oddly written on the bottom of one of her white sneakers. Like the others, Diane had been strangled, but it did not appear that she had been sexually assaulted. However, investigators did find semen on her clothes, but they didn't bother to test it, assuming it was from her boyfriend, since they had been together the night before. But her boyfriend insisted that they did not have sex that night and urged the police to test the semen, but they didn't listen. Are we surprised? Once again, another girl is not being taken seriously. The boyfriend seemed to have a better idea of what the next steps needed to be over the investigators. Right? I get expecting it to be the boyfriend's because, you know, teenagers. But still, test it. And if he's telling you it's not his and it needs to be tested, it's significant evidence. This case is still officially unsolved, but we will dive into some of the best suspects they had at the time after the break. All right, so let's talk suspects. There were a few good suspects over the years, but nothing fit perfectly. James Groom was never officially a suspect. In fact, he was only mentioned by the Baltimore newspaper called Afro-American on October of 1972. He had just been arrested for kidnapping and raping a black 17-year-old waitress who had been waiting at the bus stop when he pulled over to ask her for directions. While she was giving him directions, her bus left without her, and he offered her a ride. He drove her to a secluded area and assaulted her. After the assault, he told her that he was the freeway phantom and that he had just returned from Vietnam. He didn't try to kill her, though. He just let her go. The newspaper posed the question of James Groom as a suspect, but the police never looked into him. He was a white man, and the police were adamant that they were looking for a middle-aged black man. He bragged about being the freeway phantom after raping a black teenager and police refused to even consider him a suspect because he was white. This blew my mind. 
He even provided an explanation for the nearly year-long gap between Brenda Woodward and Diane Williams when he mentioned recently returning from Vietnam. What's disgusting is how someone can bluntly tell you that they did something and you ignore it. It's likely because the FBI assumed it was a black man taking these girls from the beginning, but they didn't want to bother complicating the investigation, so they were looking for every reason to not consider this James guy as a suspect. White men, even when admitting their crimes, often do not suffer the same repercussions as a person of color. There's always some type of explanation or excuse. 2020 is still a long ways away from equality for all. So imagine the 70s. In 1974, the FBI finally had the time to dedicate to this investigation and created a task force of over 100 agents from several agencies. They were able to cover a lot of interviews with this large of a task force, but given the years that had passed, it didn't amount to much. They did get one promising tip that led them to Morris Warren, an inmate at Lorton Prison and a member of the Green Vega gang. They would drive around in their Green Vega and abduct and rape young women and girls they encountered on the streets. It's suspected that this gang is responsible for over 100 sexual assaults. Morris Warren suggested that one of the other gang members had taken it farther and started killing the girls. He gave them details and they took him out to the sites where the bodies were found. His information seemed legit and his only condition was that his identity be kept anonymous. Well, a politician up for re-election leaked to the press that an inmate at Lorton Prison was providing information on the freeway phantom and Morris stopped talking. He retracted his statements and refused to see police again after that. After closer review of the information provided, the police realized that everything he told them could easily have been learned from the media reports of the murders. Police no longer believed that the Green Vega rapists were involved. I hate when people in prison make up lies because they're bored and need some attention. It can set a case back years. I mean, even decades. I don't get it. It just seems so stupid, and like you said, it can set a case back for years. Originally, there was thought to be seven victims of the Freeway Phantom. Angela Barnes was 14 years old when she disappeared on July 12th of 1971, walking home from a friend's house late at night. Only days after Darlenia went missing, it was natural for people to assume that she was also a victim of the same serial killer. Her case didn't quite line up with the others, though, but it was similar enough. Angela's body was found in Waldorf, Maryland, along State Highway 228. She had been sexually assaulted and shot in the head. In 1974, ex-police officers Edward Selman and Tommy Simmons were arrested and convicted of her murder, and she was officially removed from the victim list of the Freeway Phantom. The police did not believe Selman and Simmons were connected to the other victims, but oddly enough, they had reportedly been driving a green Volkswagen when they abducted Angela. Very similar to the one spotted by Nino's neighborhood when she was abducted. Again, two decent suspects are not considered because they are white. They were even convicted of the murder of a victim previously thought to be killed by the freeway phantom. I'm not saying they killed all of the girls, but it feels to me like the police should have looked into them more as potential suspects. Listen... Steph, if I go missing or something happens to me, please do not let the FBI or local PD be in charge of finding me. It's up to you and my fellow conjurers to do some real digging and plaster my face all over social media because you know I will not make it on Fox News. (laughs) Girl, you know I got you. 
The suspect the police felt was most likely responsible, though they were never able to prove it, was Robert Askins. In 1938, he was arrested for poisoning a sex worker out of revenge because a different sex worker had given him an STD. He spent some time in a mental hospital and prison, and in 1958 was released on a legal technicality. Police were made aware of Askins when he was arrested in 1977 for abducting, sexually assaulting, and beating a 24-year-old girl in Washington, D.C. As they learned more about him, they got excited that they may have finally found their guy. His co-workers mentioned that he frequently used the word tantamount, which was unusual, and linked him to the note found on Brenda's body. When they searched his house, they found soiled women's clothing, including scarves, which was odd because he didn't live with a woman. They found photos of girls and young women and an essay written by a schoolgirl he didn't have a connection to. Honestly, all I needed to hear was the word tantamount to feel like this man was the one. <laughs> You've got a point. <laughs> but the police didn't have the evidence to tie him to the deaths of any of the six girls. The green fibers found on five of the six victims didn't match the fibers found in his home or his car, the hairs found didn't match Askins. They found buttons and gold earrings under the back seat of his car, but couldn't connect them to anyone. Askins was later convicted of kidnapping and raping two other women in the district several years after the freeway killings and received a life sentence. He died in prison on April 30th, 2010 at age 91. Okay, I've said this before and I'll say it again. I do not feel sorry for men that harm women and children in their lifetime. Those are human traits we do not need walking the streets, living next door to, or watching our children. Maybe if they had looked into Askins before 1977, evidence would have been found linking him to these girls. We will never know because the police and FBI were too busy when the murders were actually happening. The police and the media focus was on the Vietnam War and the following protest, as well as the Watergate scandal, which was gaining a lot of attention at the time. This left the community feeling that the primarily white police department was not taking these cases seriously. They seemed to devote more hours to political scandals than these murders. Even Tommy Musgrove, who joined the D.C. police in 1972 and later became the head of the homicide unit, said, and I quote, Those black girls didn't mean anything to anybody. I'm talking about the police department. If those girls had been white, they would have put way more manpower on it. And there's no doubt about that. End quote. Musgrove compared it with a case of two white Maryland girls who went missing at Wheaton Plaza Mall in 1975. The bodies of the sisters Sheila and Catherine Lyon have never been found, but authorities pursued the case relentlessly until 2015, when they charged Lloyd Welch, an imprisoned sex offender, with two counts of first-degree murder. Their case was well-documented and preserved for all of those years. The community wasn't wrong in feeling that way. And it wasn't just the local police either. The FBI didn't even really interview people in the community or dedicate any time to finding this killer until years after the murders had stopped. This, my friends, is called systemic racism, and it's still happening today. Until that changes, there will always be race bias against missing women and children of color. Jim Tranium attempted to reinvestigate the cases in 2001, only to discover that the original DC case files have all been lost, as well as all the physical evidence. 
The only surviving evidence was the semen found on Diane's clothing that had never been tested. He sent it to the state police to test, but their backlog was too long and it would have taken years. So he took it back and sent it to the FBI to test. They held on to it and returned it years later without testing it. He then tried again to have the state police test the DNA, but that is where the trail ended. The state police refused to admit that they lost the evidence, but no one knows where it is. All Jim Tranium could do now without case files or evidence is speculate. His theory is that the killer lived in the same neighborhood near Wheeler Road and Southern Avenue as the first two victims because they were abducted within blocks of each other. He summarizes that the killer then went outside the neighborhood because someone might have suspected him. Tranium is quoted as saying, the police weren't paying attention, but the neighborhood was. I'm not surprised they lost most of the evidence. They barely took any to begin with. It's just sickening to me that it's so easy for them to lose case files and evidence like that and then won't even take responsibility. And there are no repercussions to this kind of careless injustice. Almost 50 years later, with case files and evidence lost to time, most people have forgotten these girls or at least given up hope of these murders ever being solved. But recently, father and daughter duo and best-selling authors Blaine Bardot and Victoria Hester hope to breathe new life into this investigation with their 2019 release of their book, Tantamount, The Pursuit of the Freeway Phantom Serial Killer. They believe it's not too late to find justice for these girls. This book attempts to spark a new interest in these cases and maybe convince someone to come forward that may have seen something back then. All these years later, these families still have no answer to who took their babies from them. We can't let this case be forgotten. We have something now that they didn't have. The internet and social media is a powerful platform and has the potential to be used for the good of the society. The brutal murder of these beautiful black young women did not receive the attention or respect that it deserved back then or now in 2020. We as a society can do better. We must do better. Okay, so conjurers, as most of you already know, I am black. My mother is half Native American and black, and my father is black. Now, I'm not here to talk to you about what some of you may assume is politics. This is about equality. I want to make it very clear where I stand. My life matters. And if my daughter goes missing, I would like her to be treated the same as your daughter. I don't want anyone looking at her and coming up with reasons as to why she put herself in that position. No one, regardless of a crime being committed or not, deserves to have their life taken. And no one, regardless of their grades in school, who they hung out with, or who they trusted, deserves to have their life devalued and disregarded. None of us are the judge, jury, or executioner. None of us should think that we have the right to play as God or whichever higher power you believe in. If I go missing, or if I end up dead, it was not suicide. I did not deserve it. My behavior as a typical teenager does not make me a menace to society, and my views do not discredit the tragedy I have endured. There is no excuse for someone who may pull a trigger on me because they think I'm more dangerous than the next person that gets pulled over for a basic traffic stop. I am human just like you. I have a life ahead of me just like you. I have dreams. I'm a mother. I am someone's mentor. I am the next little black girl's inspiration to start a podcast. I am a wife. I am a sister and I am a daughter. 
and I hope that one day I can live in a world that makes sure to mention all of these things I am instead of finding all of the things that I am not. We need to do better, and I need your help to make sure my community feels safer knowing that someone has their back and that someone cares. Donna Calloway, Kiana Burton, Lakira Goldsmith, Nanette Thomas, Abrina Mack, Laquanta Riley, Kimberly Arrington, Briasia Terrell, Alexis Patterson, Asha Degree. I've only named 10 girls, but today there are over 64,000 missing women of color, and that is just the reported cases. Conjurers, we have a long way to go, but I'm asking you the next time you see a notice for a missing person of color, please share their face on your social media. If you're in law enforcement, please take our pleas and safety seriously. Please be an ally and please just stand up for what's right. Black and Missing in America, also known as BAMFI, was founded in 2008. It's a nonprofit organization whose mission is to bring awareness to missing persons of color. They provide vital resources and tools to missing persons' family and friends and educate the minority community on personal safety. For more information about what Bamfi provides or any tips you would like to provide involving missing persons of color, visit blackandmissinginc.com or call 1-877-97-BAMFI. Again, that's 1-877-972-2634. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crumbandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions, with music by Jordan Elena. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. Steph, what's our conjure tip of the week? This week, we want to talk about malachite. This deep green gemstone helps sharpen the senses so that you can become more aware of your surrounding dangers. It also acts as an amulet by activating a sort of protective luck. Malachite is the ultimate guardian crystal and helps travelers avoid being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Some say that when danger is near, malachite will crumble as a warning sign. There's so many of us that can use that stone right now, especially this year with all the chaos many of us had to endure. Well, Conjurers, we will be back next week with another episode. Until Until next time, time, stay stay vigilant, vigilant, Conjurers. Conjurers.